and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals, it's Nicole. Welcome to the final episode of season two of Best Girl Grip. Things have sort of slowed down, both for the podcast and for life in general, and I got used to publishing one a fortnight, but today there's a double whammy, finishing up with this very special live recording from the Glasgow Film Festival. Lizzie is someone I've wanted on the podcast for a while. In fact, when I first started this project whilst working at the BFI, I was always sort of biding my time slash working up the courage to ask her. And then serendipitously, I was asked to do a live show at Glasgow at the beginning of March, where two films that Lizzie had exact were showing, and it seemed like exactly the right moment. She's sort of the perfect guest for Best Girl Grip, Uh, not that perfection exists, but in terms of the expansive career she's had from journalism to programming to being the artistic director of the Edinburgh International Film Festival to production to execing over 50 feature films at the BFI and working with renowned filmmakers such as Joanna Hogg, Andrea Arnold, Lynn Ramsey, Andrew Hay, Pavel Polakowski and Mike Lee. I love that her career has taken uh, all these different directions and it was such a pleasure to interrogate how she charted that path. Thank you so much for listening to this season. Whether you joined me since October when I released episodes recorded in Toronto, which feels like a lifetime and an epoch ago, or if you jumped on the bandwagon more recently, I hope you liked what you've heard so far. I've been thrilled and awed and galvanised by the people I've managed to interview and it remains my favourite part of doing this podcast, so I'm looking forward to seeing what season three brings in that respect. In the meantime, stay safe, stay home and watch movies. This is episode 50 of Best Girl Grip. Welcome to a very special episode of Best Girl Grip at the Glasgow Film Festival. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and I'm very excited to be here with the intent to interview Lizzie Frankie, who is a development and production executive at the BFI, and something of an inspiration to me. Um, I'm sure over the next hour you'll come to see why. Uh, I'll keep the intro brief. Lizzie has numerous credits, and if I were to sit here and list them, that would take up the hour in and of itself. Um, But let's just say, I've no doubt, Lizzie has exec-produced one of your favourite British films of the past few years. So, Lizzie, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's kick off with what you consider to be your kind of first official job in the film industry. I can remember well. It was the first thing I got paid for was writing a review for the magazine City Limits, which was a bit like The List or Time Out. It no longer exists, but it was a review for a film called Marie, a true story, starring Sissy Spesek, playing someone called Marie, who was in, in, investigating what was going wrong in her workplace. I had done some uh, writing for a magazine called Sanity, which was the campaign magazine for Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament as a student, and um, so created a little portfolio of reviews. And I applied for this job at City Limits, working in the editorial department, I didn't get the job, but they asked if I wanted to start writing for them, which, of course, I said yes. I, I can remember very vividly getting buying myself an answering machine. <laughs> and if it hadn't been for that answering machine, I wouldn't have got that first gig because I'd been 
during the day I was doing clerical and waitressing and all those boring jobs that you do and I got back um, to to a message from the editor the film editor saying um, are you available tomorrow night to do um, this review and of course I was able to call her back if I hadn't had the answering machine uh, she wouldn't have been able to contact me so again I just think about technology uh, (laughs) sitting here with you doing a podcast and I think yeah I'm I'm really analog to start (laughs) off with but that really that that answering machine changed my life and was film criticism the kind of career that you were pursuing and why did that appeal to you um for me the thing I could do um because uh in the 80s when I graduated middle mid late 80s film landscape was pretty bleak um and certainly production wasn't an opportunity because I couldn't figure out how to get into it Mm. I did do a postgraduate course doing um, some practical work and I really wanted to be an editor but I just didn't know how to start how to navigate that so but I started writing and that's something I could do and um, obviously people recognized I had a facility for doing it so yeah my career started as a critic and I really did enjoy writing about film you know it was something you know to be able to expand and think about it was you know to me a great great delight and how soon into that were you making a living from doing that? You know, was it That's still a supplementing really, other jobs? Yeah, really interesting question. It took time. Um, to be honest, I never, I never generated my complete income through through journalism. I had to do a mixture of things. Uh, interestingly, I started reviewing, and then I actually ended up working as an assistant to the head of distribution at the the BFI, and that was, you know, again. The, the the odd work that came my way was great, but I wasn't sort of all guns blazing as a freelance journalist because I just, you know, again, it took, takes time to create your portfolio. Mm. But every time I've had time as a journalist, I've always had something else to rely on. So there was a period of my life when I was doing a lot of writing, but I was doing three days a week teaching as well. And was that kind of part of the reason you look to expand your horizons to kind of other areas yeah. of the industry? I think I've always, I sort of joke, I'm a sort of jackie of all trades, but <laughs> in a way that it's all about a love of cinema and everything I did was about cinema. And actually everything I did also taught me more about various aspects. So um, I was a journalist, but I was also beginning to program. So on the back of um, being an assistant at the BFI, um, I heard about a job working at the Everyman Cinema and for Electric Pictures and being a sort of um, press marketing person for Electric Pictures dash the Everyman Cinema, which also and the job also involves some programming. I, I went for the job and got it, and that sort of again expanded my horizon for several years because I learned about distributing cinema. I was involved. Um, it was my boss basically was growing her company when I originally started working her it was her and me and when I left it was she took on four more people because her company was expanding but I learned about programming the Everman which at the time was repertory cinema so that was fantastic I was involved in acquisitions of films and she trusted me enough that you know send me off to festivals and if I liked a film I could recommend it to her and she would investigate it whether it was something she wanted to acquire or not so I learned about that aspect of things and you know, again, everything I've, I did then taught me about the sort of whole ecosystem. Mm. But in each case, the one bit that sort of eluded me was production. But so I thought, well, I'll keep on biding my time on that. But I need to sort of, in a way, prove my taste um, 
and also um, generate relationships in the film industry, which was um, about the time probably the, the people I was sort of kind of hanging out with were other distribution companies, um, other other journalists, and then sort of learning about the business through those, those networks. And presumably it was that that led you to the role as artistic director at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Yeah, so, so I, while I was sort of working for Liz at Electric Pictures, I decided to sort of take a stand back, partly because in a way my job was getting slightly too big. I mean, in a sense, that was just me and her. <laughs> and then she, I think she realised when I left that she mm. needed other people. <laughs> I, I, I went to work for an organisation for Association of Independent Producers, which was partly, again, to learn about production. I went as their events organiser, but also as a way of sort of treading water a bit. And I was was doing events for them, but I was also doing journalism again. I said writing for their in-house magazine and I was also starting to do some programming. I did some programming for Sheila Whitaker at, um, at the BFI um, South Bank and again I was sort of developing my portfolio. One of the things I did for Sheila was a season called Give a Girl Her Credit which was about women screenwriters. I, I co-devised that season with um, a friend and uh, a sort of extended colleague uh, Kate Ogborne who was working for the BFI at the time as well. On the back of that season, I we got contacted by several people about a book, and uh, I ended up going with the BFI to write to write that book. So, again, more about sort of you know continually investigating cinema. My love of cinema that was a three year project. Out of that, in a way, I established myself further as a journalist um, and was starting to write for the Guardian, Independent. I suppose my profile was being raised. Mark Cousins at that time asked me to go and interview Theresa Wright, who's famous uh, Hitchcock actress, during the Edinburgh Film Festival. It was quite obvious when I went up to the festival that they needed help um, <laughs> doing other Q and A's. So I just got sort of, sort of drafted in to doing other Q and A's. I and I was sort of hanging out with the festival. Really loved being in the festival. Mark stood down at the end of that summer and suggested uh, that I apply to replace him, which I did. It wasn't a given because I know there were quite a few people going for that job, but I was very lucky to get that job. So again, it's also about creating stepping stones, but there was never an end goal. It was just like everything was about, I love cinema. There's Mm -hmm. another thing I want to explore, another thing I want to explore. It was great being working in a festival um, environment and that I found very exciting. I also... You know, remember very vividly falling in love with Edinburgh and thinking, what a great city. Um, um, I'd spent time as a child in Scotland, so it seemed like a nice thing to come back to, to mm. come back and, and live in Scotland full time. So again, it was, you know, it, it was happened, a very happy, happy sort of uh, stepping stone to be invited to go and do some work for Mark that led to my five years running the festival. I also love the idea that you kind of say yes to a smaller thing that then grows into the bigger thing. You exactly. Know, like the season became the book. And exactly. And became Exactly. The job. And I think that's about, for me, it's always about creating opportunities, but creating opportunities out of a curiosity. So for me, you know, I remember sort of sitting with Kate Ogborn discussing women screenwriters going, why doesn't anyone know that Gilda was written by a woman, you know? And, <laughs> and then we started digging out and we thought, there's a, there's a season here. And uh, again, you know, Sheila was a great champion and a great advocate. And I was very lucky that I've had in my life, I've had some really amazing uh, women who've kind of 
responded to my passion and enthusiasm for film and have helped me in my career by giving me opportunities. And at Edinburgh, you're widely credited with um, sort of re-establishing that brand and that festival as a showcase for British cinema. I think it's fair to say Mark Cousins and had done a lot of great work mm. the last as a programme and then running the festival for two years. But I think the time I was there, I would say it was a kind of, again, a sort of serendipitous moment. It was 97. Uh, Labour just got into power in the UK. There was a sort of spirit of optimism. Mm. My first festival I kind of sort of in a way hit the hit the runway running whatever expression is and a lot of people internationally sort of saw there was kind of this energy in terms of filmmakers in the UK um we created we created notice Mark had done really good work but I sort of kind of was able to sort of take it to the next level and again as back to serendipity uh, Scotland um, was just going through the process of having its parliament. So there's a lot of focus on Scotland as well. So all these things were happening to sort of make the festival feel really robust, strong. Film 4 had just started their new channel. And in my second year of running Edinburgh, they wanted to come and sponsor us. So again, it felt like we were part of a whole new sort of funky British cinema scene. And do you have a proudest programming moment from your time there? Yeah, I think, well, there's many moments I love and I still remember. I kind of was looking back recently, um, sadly, Buck Henry, the brilliant screenwriter and actor died and someone posted a page from 97 in Edinburgh and I was thinking, oh, Buck Henry came to Edinburgh. I remember that, but Buck Henry, but we also had Cindy Sherman and we mm. had, you know, um, we had Lynn Ramsey's first short and I was just thinking, looking at that first that page of that week and I'm going, wow, there was a lot of great things going on. I'm proud of opening um, our third festival, the first festival I was running with, you know, Ratcatcher. I'm very proud of technically having the world premiere of In the Mood for Love. I'd seen it in Cannes, but it hadn't had its full sound mix. Right. So when we closed in my fourth year in 2000 with In the Mood for Love, we technically had the world premiere because it was fully mixed by then. Um, so, and I remember that moment, Wong Kar Wai came and gave him a brilliant masterclass and he and his family drove around Scotland. He came back and said, I want to make a film here. And I thought, I don't know if I can do better than this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I peaked. Um, I peaked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I decided that the next year was going to be my last year because I think that is, you know, pretty awesome. So yeah, I, I did love it. It was a great time, great opportunity to platform things I really mm. believed in, which is Again, all through my career, it's about what I, you know, having an opportunity to beat the drum about what you believe in. And it was at that point that you moved into production. And I'm interested in that you said earlier you kind of didn't feel like you knew how to get into production. Yeah. So why did that suddenly feel like the right well, time? Well, it's interesting because just before getting the Edinburgh job or even that being on the horizon, mm -hmm. I started doing um, script reading for for a couple of companies in London because I was a critic. Again, that. You know, my portfolio of reviews, I'd been writing sound and sound reviews for quite a few years and that had, gave me credibility. And I I did sort of a, approach a few people saying, look, here, I can write about cinema made. Give me an opportunity to write about things yet to be made in terms of doing script coverage. And um, I got a few gigs, including a great gig. I, I was kind of one of the there's a brilliant company called CB Sales who no longer exist, but they were international sales company representing you know, David Lynch, Jim Jarmusch, Todd Haynes, you know, selling those kind of great sort of um, films. 
remember Nikki Caro's first film and they asked me to sort of do regular stuff for them. So I was basically just reading a lot of scripts, assessing scripts for them. It was a great gig because that could go alongside being a, a journalist. Mm. So I had a kind of groundwork in, again, understanding that bit. So when I was at Edinburgh, I thought, okay, I'm now going to make the plunge into working in production. I was like, okay, I, if I can't do it now, I'm never mm. going to be able to do it. And I met a few companies and uh, a company called Little Bird, Jonathan Cavendish, took the brave step of hiring me because, to be honest, you know, I'd never done any formal development. I'd just done lots of script re- reports and script reading, but I came with a very good contacts book to the company. <laughs> and I, I think he was canny about that. But I think also he, he, he at the time was sort of devising, he wanted to run a strand in his company that was looking at horror. And I loved horror. And I think he sort of zeroed in, in on that on me and gave me the opportunity to sort of develop um, horror screenplays. I can remember various people going, how can you go from being a sort of art house person to horror? I go, very easily. Don't, don't you see that there's... Uh, All horror is Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Just, you know, I think there was that sort of snobbishness in those days about horror. So I had my first footing there, basically running a kind of sort of quasi-label for them for several years out of which we made one film which is a film called trauma which was a trauma to make (laughs) but it it's quite a cracked film Um, mark evans directed it the great thing that came out of it which was always the intention mark evans wanted to find a project for colin firth that got him away from his romantic lead thing Mm. and he they were friends and they had colin wanted to sort of expand his horizon as an actor and this was a, a a project that was kind of a kind of hitchcockian space about someone whose whose world wasn't quite what it seemed to be and though the film had various um i'd say uh, challenges the one thing that came out of it was that it proved colin firth was an actor with sort of chops um mm, in so terms of could um, say he has you to thank for his oscar well not really but but the other thing is also i'm very proud of the fact that we we cast um Naomi harris the young actress Naomi harris as as someone he becomes sort of rather fixated on and she was sort of i think she'd been doing bits of tv but we we were quite keen to make sure we did colorblind casting and i always think that you know again i'm very proud of the fact that that was a Again, which in 2001 was not mm. the big conversation, but we were sort of really introducing diverse diversity into the project then. It was interesting. It was an interesting experience. I think the reason that it was, I call it crap, because ultimately it was a big, very ambitious project and you were making it on British cinema budgets when it really should have been probably a, 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 a sort of studio, <laughs> studio film. A lot of people benefited from it, but it was also, for me, learning a learning about mm. production um, through that through that prism. And how did you benefit from it? Is that kind of what led you into the BFI or that just kind of gave you the um, confidence? It gave me a confidence to understand processes. Absolutely. It gave me confidence to understand scripts. It gave me a credit. It gave me the experience of going to festivals. It went to Sundance. It went to Toronto. So finally, having been someone as a programme, now I was with a film that was getting um, that kind of coverage. Yeah, confidence. So my time at Little Birds sort of came to an end because they'd got funding from the film council to run this horror thing and then that funding came to an end. So I kind of knew I had to sort of move on. And I suppose the confidence and the credibility of having made films gave me my next job, which was working for EM Media, which was a kind of regional film fund. Mm -hmm. And I went to 
that's why I started Accept Producing, basically. Right, right. And what did you like about working for a film fund? I think one of the things I learned about my time at Little Bird and my sort of range of skills that is actually I'm a better exec producer than the producer because I can do over I can oversee things I've got sort of a kind of I've got the kind of contacts and acumen to understand context and it's, isn't that better to be spread over lots of films than really being involved in one film mm. for you know a year and a half in a very intense way and so what you know again Ian Media hired me I brought to them that sort of expertise of seeing how you position a film, seeing how you develop a film, but also you, you know, how you kind of go, well, the film's now made, so how do we get it out into the world? And that, that sort of expertise, which also from my days of working at Electric Pictures never, has never quite left me, and um, my programming. I always think, you know, everything about, everything about the industry is about programming, really. Think, where, where's the context? Where's, where's it best positioned? You know, it's it. I call myself still a curator because it's about curating decision making mm. and then sort of affecting it in in the best possible way. And I kind of realised that that sort of execing was played to my strength. Um, producing played to my weakness because producing is really hard, <laughs> and and at times you know it's it's very labour intensive on one thing, mm. and I need to probably be across lots of things at the same time. So for the people in the room and for listeners that will hear this later, can you kind of maybe make a, a, a distinction between exec producing and producing? Because those are two roles that often yeah. kind of get blurred yeah. and blended into yeah. one another. Exactly. And a lot of people don't really know the difference. Yeah. So exec producing is really, you're usually representing a body of finance, that you're the kind of in-between person that you're there to. So my job at my job at EM Media and then obviously at the BFI for that film council is you're representing the fund you're representing the interests of the fund, but you're also wanting to help the filmmaker make the best film. Mm. So you're kind of there, I would say to people, to be the first audience. You're not there on an everyday basis. You're there for cuts of the film. You're there for you know, drafts of the script. A producer is on it, brings it all together, project manages it, creatively oversees it, is, but also is sort of kind of liaising with the execs. Producing is it's a a range of skills that I, I have a huge, huge admiration for people who can do it all, which is, is, a, is, you know, your part legal brain, your part, your negotiator, you're on the floor, you know, damage limitation uh, work. It's a range of things. Exec producing, yeah, it's still hard, but it's not, it's not easy, but it's, it's more reflecting, being able to reflect to support I suppose, in a way, working for places like the BFI, the great thing about that is it's being supportive rather than if I was working maybe for a hard finance company, I'd be going, this film needs to be more commercial. And by the way, I'm doing inverted <laughs> commas <laughs> uh, for those listening. Whereas obviously working for things like EM Media and the BFI, you're being there to support the project and support the filmmaker. So the BFI, you've exec produced a staggering number of projects, all of which you know have they're very distinct and they're very unique but is there something for you that knits them together you know what what is it about a film that earns it the the Lizzie Frankie stamp of approval I think it's I I, I suppose I try and not personalize it I think it's about a BFI stamp of approval in the sense I'm representing the BFI but I think certainly marginalized voices probably right from the beginning of my career you know when I was working for Liz Ren Electric you know we we distributed we were really behind distributing female directors at the time again that no one was making a big song and dance about it but we were sort of you know Claire Denis, Jane Campion um, amongst others 
was sort of the kind of slate we were creating. So I'd definitely say that's part of my remit. When I was a journalist, I was be I started out the Guardian writing for the women's page and then moved on to the arts page. So again, I was always sort of championing women directors. In the way the BFI, we're, we're very much our remit is to bring diversity to the screen. So yes, it's sort of, I'd say that it's all bound up. My interest, the reason I love being at the BFI is mm-hmm. that my sort of gut instincts can play out. And when you decide to champion a project, is it just relying on that gut instinct or is it more of a deliberation? Like, are you talking with members of the team? Yeah. Every choice we make is collegiate and, you know, so and that's good. It's checks and balances. But yes, you do have space for your passions, um, but you have to get the rest of the team behind your passions. So, uh, yes, you have to be able to be vocalised why you want to support something and why you think it's important. But obviously the filmmakers also have to do that <laughs> as well, you know. I say to film, you know, filmmakers I'm trying to champion, give me reasons why I, I can take you mm. to the rest of the team. I think we're quite clear now. What's great is we're, we're, we can be very clear. I, would, I wouldn't use the word precise, but, but we do have our priorities, which we can pub, you know, be public about. And that just really helps us show, demonstrate to the industry you know, what we can prioritise. Mm-hmm. For production, it's really hard. We can only make 12 to 15 projects a year, back 12 to 15 projects a year go figure that's going to be quite competitive development we can we have you know between us the extensive team we have about uh, 140 or so projects but maybe a bit more it fluctuates but so we can be a bit more sort of follow up on our noses in terms of championing things that might seem a little more fragile yeah I go by my gut instinct of what do I want to what I see playing out mm-hmm. but also what I've stories I think are important to tell and at what point did you learn to trust that instinct I think I've always had that nose and I I know that's kind of why I got my job with Liz Friend because when I you know I came to the job like back in the 80s being quite knowledgeable about Mm -hmm. cinema I was an avid film lover and I can remember Liz Wren you know hiring me so for my first I mean I I say yes I started writing my writing for City Limits well then my editor then was very exacting she was very exacting about taste so I've had various sort of places where I know that I've been challenged and then working for Liz I I think she tuned into the fact I had interesting taste so she could send me off to see a film by a complete unknown Australian woman director to test whether I liked it or not and if I liked it then we would buy it and it was called Sweetie so you know it's like at the time it might not be blindingly obvious certain films, but you know you had to sort of put your neck out to love something and uh, and know that you know you had to really champion it. And I think that's what I learned from Liz was if you found a film that you loved, you really had to champion it. You had to be prepared to um, not just stand on the box shouting about it, but literally as marketing in those days was in London. I I, I was like I'd have to go around leafleting places. <laughs> I remember we had this brilliant film called The Runner, which was an Iranian film by an Iranian director called Amir Nadiri, and which was so stunning and so beautiful. And literally, I spent the week before it was opening running around London with leaflets to make sure every organisation, any cafe, any place where we felt we could create an audience had leaflets and knew about the film. So it's like your passion had to sort of go down to the soles of your feet. 
And you were speaking earlier about kind of your, your role is to sort of support the filmmaker. And you've, you've worked with a very wide range of people. So when it comes to sort of working with someone like Joanna Hogg, who has a very established vision and a, a developed voice, how does that support then vary when you're working with first-time filmmakers like William Oldroyd or yeah. Neil Carrier or Deborah Hayward? I think it, it doesn't change, but I say you're just basically holding up a mirror to the filmmaker about the project they brought to you and just getting them to look at it. And and you're just trying to help them think through the, the challenges of it and to reflect on it. So I don't, there's not a, a distinction. Obviously, some filmmakers don't necessarily want to be challenged, um, but I'd say they're only the very established directors. I, I you know, Joanna... All the filmmakers I've worked with and have a good rapport with, they they really they want to know what you you think. So you just be as honest as you can. And I again goes back to gut instinct. I, you know, go what's working, what what you feel. I would say again, I'm the first audience to a project from script to the first cuts. You know, what's working for me, what's not working. I'll some, sometimes say to a filmmaker, did you intend us to feel this at this point? Maybe you intend us to feel a bit a bit bored for a bit you know I mean boredom is an interesting concept in film because sometimes you just want to have those spaces you know in in in, in films but I just yeah I my job is to reflect and and to to sort of interrogate in a kind of supportive way not in a kind of thou shalt not way I think I think still there's anxiety that you come in as a kind of like this it's gonna be done this way that way no that's not what the exec it's about, and I remember when Joanna came to us for funding for exhibition, it was the first time she'd engaged with other external funding. She'd, the first couple of films she'd done for like no budget, right. very, very low budget, you're calling out favours. So she'd had complete control. So it was important, again, that she could trust those holding the, the mirrors back to her yeah absolutely and often there's a lot of voices you know you have several exec producers on a project and when you're all feeding into something how as a collective do you decide okay we're, we're done you know we've yeah. finessed this it's as good as it yeah. can be I think again sometimes you have to sort of be cognizant and diplomatic around the other voices in the room and ultimately I think this is again the this is where back to the producer's role is to sort of is to sort of slightly chair those voices. And I think what's been great, certainly about the films I worked on uh, recently, is that there's a sort of chorus of approval. I mean, I work with other really great execs from other organisations. Particularly, I had a really enjoyable time working with Rose Garnett from from Film Four, and she has a you know, again a very exciting way of looking at cinema. So I kind of sometimes I feel I'm learning from other execs too, which is always exciting. And I'm learning always learning from filmmakers. And presumably always still like kind of learning on the job like yeah. still because every project is different every project has its unique idiosyncrasies so yeah you're always learning do you have something that you think is the biggest learning curve of your career i've i've had many steep learning curves in terms of production i think there are moments where i've had to learn how to handle quite difficult situations I think the bit I hate most about my job is having to say no to people because I have to say no more than I say yes mm. and I've had to learn to do that and I've had to learn to be sort of quite tough toughen myself up about that and sometimes it's really hard to say no to people you really respect but you just have to say no because you can't say yes to everybody and I've I've had one project in my life which was quite a complex project that didn't work and that was hard to sort of see how to help it get better and again that was sort of it, it's 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 horrible when things go wrong 
obviously we we know about the things that go right mm. but i i learned how to deal with yeah i suppose it's confrontation it's about how to yeah how to be tough because mm. when i was i suppose i learned that running edinburgh because i would have to say no to people about having films in the festival um but also with the bfi presumably it's about saying no to the project as opposed to the filmmaking you yes. know they can come to you with an Abs- idea abs- but, you know, absolutely it's not no forever absolutely but people it can be personalized and that's i completely understand and again i think maybe having sat on the other side of the fence i remember when i worked for little bird and we got turned down for finance and i'd sort of go off and go stomp 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 stupid stupid execs so i'm sure I hope that's what happens when we turn down people just stomp off and then, then go, okay, actually, I'm going to go back and ask for another project. We always keep the door open to the filmmakers. It's, yeah, we have, and the producers. It's, yes, as you absolutely rightly say, it's it's the project, but it can be, yeah. Yeah, obviously yeah. tough to see someone yeah. upset yeah. as a result of your decision, of course. And do you find it a creatively fulfilling role? Do you kind of get, you know, what you need out of it as a job in that regard? I do, of course. I mean, I feel exceptionally lucky to be in this job in the sense that I go to work and I'm talking ideas with people rather than going to work. And there's many jobs. I mean, I, I worked, I've worked in clerical admin in my life. So I know there's jobs where you're just sort of, you're dredging through writing letters, just, you know, doing quite you know, admin things. So I feel very lucky in the sense I've got a job that is creative and I get paid for it. I sometimes feel my own creativity gets you know, I kind of think, best mm, people say to me, have you got a script in you? I don't have a script, but sometimes I think I need to create space in my, my life for doing something creative for me. Mm. And I think I'm just at that point now in my life where I've just started doing pottery and that's really nice. And because you, you know, I'm in a, a job that can be overwhelming, it can be 24-7, it's like reading scripts at the weekend, blah, blah, blah. So it's really important now for me to find a bit of time mm. for myself. Maybe I'll start writing really bad poetry, you know. <laughs> Well, I was going to say about the writing, do you ever feel the need to satiate that impulse still? Or is that something you've kind of put to bed now? When I gave up journalism, I said to myself, I would go back to, if I went back to writing, it would be in a sort of fictional space. And I have a book full of short story ideas that haven't been explored. And I keep saying to myself, I've got to take a summer holiday where I actually start writing again. Mm -hmm. You know, my job does involve writing. I have to write feedback. I have to write blurbs and stuff occasionally but yeah I do think that maybe I've hidden from my own creative skills through the prism of others it's much easier as I said to someone it's much easier to be an auntie or a midwife than a mum in the sense mm-hmm. that you know you're supporting someone else rather than your own creativity and confronting those anxieties I think having been creative has helped me give insight into the blocks and the sort of yeah the, the complexities mm. of being creative and perhaps knowing how to phrase things so that people can take it on board because you know sometimes reiteration is needed or yeah. just rephrasing of, of course and and being a fully expressive person and I think empathetic I think that that that's also been important to me to sort of be empathetic when people have got writer's block you know mm. I know what it's like to have writer's block so therefore you know know when also, I'm really interested, personally, I'm interested when projects sort of sometimes don't coalesce and it's like digging around to find out, well, what's the dynamic, what's going on in the writer that it's, it's, it's really interesting because I know sometimes that writing is sort of stymied by life stuff, mm. you know. Yeah, like human interest. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that the hardest part was saying no to filmmakers, but is there something about your job that would perhaps surprise listeners um, that it entails? That's a really interesting question because for me now, I've done it for so long, I'm thinking 
it, everything feels unsurprising that maybe <laughs> if you if anyone was to be on on my shoulder with a webcam they would go oh my god I didn't realize that I mean we do have a lot of bureaucracy that we have to sort of fulfill which is important so meetings which we're very rigorous about all those all the projects that come in for applications with for money I think in terms of me in terms of personal happiness I still get a deep thrill when a project that I've supported or helped get us into a major festival that's there's something so delightful about that moment where that you know that something you've you've loved for a long time has been recognized by you know others mm. and of course you you know that thrill of seeing great reviews for things and but ultimately I still get the biggest excitement of being in the auditorium with the audience for that first screening of a film that you've been involved in because I still think that I still very I still love audience and audience in a way that's where I started you know I was a critic but I was also then working in a cinema so I still get that excitement of feeling a film coming alive I, I still have this slight obsession if someone tells me they've seen a film I go where what time how full was it I know where were you sitting I'm really interested yeah. in cinema spaces I'm interested in how festivals you know run I'm I love all that as well as you know being involved in production so in a way the beginning of my career hasn't sort of left me I can remember very vividly being in Cannes and having stayed up really really late and I was hanging out with a, a friend she was programming another festival and I said okay we you know we were at some party I said right tomorrow we both have to be at that 8 30 screening and I'm going to ring you at seven in the morning to wake you up and we're going to be there and I just remember both of us you know meeting on the corner for our coffees and croissants and being really really blurry eyed and go okay why are we going to this movie she kept saying why are we going okay because it's gonna be genius it's gonna be genius and we got to the top of the cinema at the Cinema Lumiere in Cannes, which is like, if you're feeling a bit queasy and you're at the top of the cinema, it's really vertiginous. And you think, oh, I've got to sit through this film. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling not great. And you couldn't take coffees into the cinema. You're sitting there with your water bottle. Brutal. And I just remember going halfway through. I remember my friend telling me, he said, oh, I'm so pleased you got, you made me come. So pleased. And we're just sitting there, sort of any hangover, just sort of washed away. Mm. This was when I was much younger, and you know, you had, well, it's yeah. a curative film. <laughs> yeah, but it was completely just that. And I can remember where I was sitting. I can remember exactly the space I was sitting twenty years ago. And that's the power of cinema that can sort of have that indelible print. Or likewise, I can remember you know the year before seeing Ratcatcher in certain my girl coming out, going wow. You know, I can that feeling. That's that still doesn't go. I when I fall in love with a film, I still fall in love. And you must have had that with um, Surge recently at Sundance because I feel like I remember when we first met, I remember you talking about the script and maybe yeah. that was like two, three years ago. Yeah. And like it's now, you know, it's been yeah. a long gestating project. Yeah, and that, and that was as well that, that was that exactly that's that was a fantastic screening at Sundance and the real sort of feeling of it connecting. And you you tend to you're involved, you know, you, as an exec, you're invited to the sound mix and the the final um the grade, te- the grade. that's yeah. thank you the that's technical okay. upgrade um but for that because they had this sort of very intense deadline to get push it to get into Sundance so I didn't go because I had sort of you know do it when I wasn't around and um it was just so exciting to sort of see the fully graded fully sound mixed uh version um and uh yeah that that was yeah fantastic and Neil's done a really brilliant job there a really exciting debut and again you get sort of like a sort of proud auntie you're just so excited to see a voice a voice emerge 
And speaking of voices emerging, is there a film that you've seen recently by a woman director that you think is an undervalued gem that perhaps not enough people have seen? I've been really lucky to see three films by women directors in the last two months because I've been to some, I mean, I've been lots more, but there's three outstanding films. Now, three of the directors, maybe one is not known so well in the world, but um, in, in Sundance, I saw Kitty Green's The Assistant, which blew me away and such a brilliantly precise piece of filmmaking. I absolutely adored it. It's a deeply political film. Um, it's a deeply resonant film. At Sundance, actually, Sundance watched this space because I think she's a genius, but I saw this uh, documentary called Time by Garrett Bradley, and I've been following Garrett Bradley's shorts. She's um, an Afro-American sort of filmmaker artist who's made docs, but also does sort of in that kind of artist sort of installation space. And her first feature, this documentary Time, is just... I mean, it was a transcendental moment. Like, again, remember where I was when I was watching it and just being completely, I, I felt sort of, sort of elated and moved. It's a very spiritual film. And then in, in Berlin, I was there very briefly for, for meetings, but I saw two amazing films, but both by directors that we'll be hearing a lot of. I mean, we, we've heard a lot about, you know, I saw Kelly Reichardt's uh, First Cow, which I adored. And I also saw the Eliza Hitman film, um, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which is just astounding. So I feel I've been on this role of fantastic women directors, but of in saying unknown, Garrett Bradley, watch the space, she's going to be huge. What I love about the, the last two that you just mentioned is that, you know, it's not their first film. So, mm. you know, people might come in discovering mm. that film, mm. but then there's like a wealth of stuff that they can kind of revisit afterwards. Yeah. And Kitty Green definitely is in that space because she's made some really significant work. Mm. Um, Casting John Bonet was yeah, incredible. Like, really, if you guys haven't seen it, like, yeah, definitely absolutely. See it. But the assistant, which hopefully I think has got distribution now, mm. is a really significant, really significant film. And do you still have role models now? Are there still like peers or other women that you look up to and kind of? Yeah, I have huge. I mean, I have role models of people. You know, I, I Matilda Cavalica, who. You know, I was reporting to me as head of network, and now is like going off to be a brilliant agent. I look at Matilda, I go, "Okay, what can I learn from you?" She's got, you know, she's got amazing um, critical creative instincts, but she's also got business acumen, which I never have. I'm going, <laughs> "Wow, okay, <laughs> okay, Matilda, I need to learn from you." Um, I think it's important to be 360. I learn from filmmakers. I learn. I I try and learn from. I think every process is a, a learning process. Um, yeah, absolutely. Have people I hugely admire and you know, want to take things away from. You know, I've I have had in my life, sadly, people who are no longer you know no longer in the world, and I still think about what I learned from them professionally. And, and I think about when I was at uh, AIP, associated in producers, there uh, was Ruth, this woman called Ruth Piccadilly who edited the magazine, and she got me back into writing, and she taught me a lot about having confidence as a journalist and I still think about her and I still think about my colleague Chris Collins who sadly died nearly six years ago as what I learned from him as a as a as a, as a peer and so yes I, I think and I, I sometimes still think what would Chris do in this situation because Chris was really good at handling tricky situations mm. I think what would Chris do? <laughs> I also love that you could have learned that while doing a different role but it like applies to something that you know down the line or much later mm. or, you know it's not that just yeah. you, what you learn in that role only yeah. applies to that you know, yeah one I think thing. that's the only way to be a human being actually is to constantly sort of assess things and and uh think about what you can you can take from every experience 
I think that's a really lovely place to end it. Um, thank you so much, Lizzie, for joining thank you. me. This has been so well, I've just learned a lot from you about oh. <laughs> so, and podcasting. So brilliant. I'm glad. And thank you to the Glasgow Film Festival thank for you. having us today. Thank you guys for coming as well. Thank you.